0: A challenge in any group discussion is to draw out the normally quiet ones. The danger, of course, is that the more vocal participants will dominate and preclude others from joining in. But let's face it, by personality, some of us are more naturally reticent about opening up in group situations than others. And yet, what those who are more quiet think or feel is just as important as what anyone else thinks or feels. Perhaps you're that kind of a person. Today, in our study of God's Word and our look at the meaning of Christmas, we want to look at it from the perspective of the quiet member of the Trinity, the one who is active and involved in the story, and yet uh, who is not as talked about often as God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit is seldom considered in the Christmas story. We're going to begin today with a text we have partially read earlier in the service, but we'll read it again in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. In other words, he desired to end their legal engagement quietly rather than publicly, as he might have which could have resulted, by the law, in her stoning. She could have been killed. Rather, he decided to do it in a quiet way because of his great love yet for Mary. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means, God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The meaning of Christmas to God the Holy Spirit would include at least three aspects. It would include his prophecies, His power, and His person. Those are the three lines of thought we're going to follow this morning, and I invite you to write down those key words so that you can follow along more easily with me. The meaning of Christmas to God the Holy Spirit would in the first place include the thought of His prophecies, for His prophecies were fulfilled. Excuse me. In calling the Holy Spirit, as I did earlier, a quiet member of the Trinity, I am not at all suggesting that he has had nothing to do or to say in ages past. Indeed, the Holy Spirit, like each member of the Trinity, has been deeply involved in every aspect of creation and redemption. But I'm thinking today particularly of the Holy Spirit in his role as the author of Scripture. Human vessels were employed by the Holy Spirit as His instruments or His channels by which to reveal the mind of God. Peter says that holy men spoke for God as they were borne along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along, is another way to say it, by the Holy Spirit. That gives us a hint, at least, as to that work of the Holy Spirit that we call the work of inspiration. The Holy Spirit did not dictate God's mind into the minds of people, so that what they wrote was dictated to them as the Word of God, like an employer might dictate a letter. through his secretary, that is not how he did it, but rather the Holy Spirit through the gracious work of superintendency oversaw the human authors so that as they wrote what they wrote out of the context of their own personalities, what they wrote were the very thoughts and the very words that God wanted them to use. He guided and guarded the writers of scripture so that what you and I have in our hands today in which we call the Bible contains propositional statements that reveal God himself to us. The Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures. Now in the Bible there are different kinds of literature as you may know. There is history, for example, Great deal of the Bible is historical. There's also poetry. There are epistles. And there is prophecy. Prophecy, in the sense that I'm using the term, is the prediction of events or persons yet future from the time of the writer. In other words, some prophecy has been fulfilled from our perspective. But prophecy to be prophecy was yet future to the writer as he penned the words. All of these prophecies are related in some way to God's program in Christ, revealing to us the person or the work of Messiah. Prophecy actually is one of the great evidences of the Bible's supernatural origin and the existence of a living, Personal God who transcends time. God is able to reveal to a prophet living here what will happen there because God Himself transcends time. He is apart from time. If you are interested in prophecy, by the way, and how it uh, gives evidence to the authenticity and the authority of the Word of God, one of the fine reference works you might want to get your hands on, if you haven't seen it, is the book by Josh McDowell, out now a number of years, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In fact, there are two volumes to that. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, you will find compelling evidence regarding the authority that prophecy gives to the Bible. A good deal of prophecy, all of which came by the Holy Spirit, I remind you, deals with the Christmas event. That is Christ's first coming. In fact, there are over 300 specific prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. Peter Stoner, who wrote a book called Science Speaks, dealt with only eight of them in some research that he did. One of the eight included Christ's birth at Bethlehem. He calculated, based upon these eight specific prophecies, the odds that these eight prophecies could be fulfilled in one person. Are you with me? He calculated the probabilities that only eight of the 300, but only eight of the prophecies, could be fulfilled in one person. And the results of his research indicate that the probability is one in one hundred quadrillion that just these eight prophecies could be fulfilled in one person. You say, how much is a quadrillion? That's about half of our national debt. (laughs) No. We haven't gotten quite that far yet, but we're learning all these new, tu- tr- uh, new terms like trillions and quadrillions is what comes next. It's hard to visualize what a quadrillion is. It's a lot of zeros, but perhaps uh, we can illustrate it the way he does by saying that if you were to place silver dollars across the whole state of Texas, two feet deep, That would be about 100 quadrillion. Then let's suppose that you took one of those silver dollars and marked it and hid it somewhere out there in the middle of the state of Texas and all of those silver dollars, and you sent a blindfolded man out to find it, the chances that he would pick that one are the same that those eight prophecies from the Old Testament could be fulfilled in one person. It could not be manufactured. It had to be supernaturally overseen. And so, as we think about the meaning of Christmas to God the Holy Spirit, we have to start here. His prophecies were fulfilled. That's what it means to Him. Now, what prophecies were fulfilled? Well, we see one of them here in the text we read. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 7.14 is quoted. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That specific prophecy regarding the Messiah, says Matthew, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you let your eyes rest on chapter 2, you notice again in verse 6, a quotation from the Old Testament. Here from Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In other words, the prophecy was given hundreds of years before Jesus was born, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And Matthew accurately records that was fulfilled. And again at the end of chapter two, you see another prophecy, this time from Jeremiah 31 and 15, regarding the death of the young in Bethlehem. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And Matthew says this was the fulfillment. Of Jeremiah's prophecy, what happened when Herod commanded the death of the young in the city of Bethlehem. And so we see wonderfully the fulfillment of prophecy in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we've only looked at three here in this immediate context, but there are over 300 of them. A hundred times more prophecies than we've looked at this morning that are fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit celebrates Christmas, one of the things that he celebrates is the fulfillment of prophecy. And you and I can do the same. And then I believe the Holy Spirit, in regard to the meaning of Christmas to him, rejoices in that his power, his power was manifested. And we see this in the virgin birth, which again is mentioned in the text that we've looked at. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Let me say a word about this matter of virginity. That is a word that is actually looked upon in our day with disdain. If someone is a virgin, that is a disgrace to a lot of people in our world. They would say a person who claimed to be a virgin... And may I remind you that that is not a feminine word. That is as masculine as it is feminine. That when a person claims to be a virgin, there is unbelief in our world. Why? How? Well, that's unhealthy. It's impossible, they say. But I remind you that virginity was is and always will be God's standard for the unmarried. We're talking about sexual abstinence. Virginity is very positive because virginity produces freedom from guilt, which a lot of people have to carry around with them. Furthermore, it is healthy. Because virginity gives freedom from anxiety about disease, not the least of which is AIDS. With regard to virginity, once it is given away, it cannot be reclaimed. It is impossible. Now I say that gently because I know that that can be devastating To someone who has improperly, prematurely given that gift away. To understand that it is something that cannot be brought back, that cannot be reclaimed, can be devastating. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ forgives. He forgives sexual sin like he forgives any other sin. He cannot restore virginity. But he can restore purity based upon his cleansing and forgiveness. And so if you are one of those today who cannot claim virginity, let me exhort you to claim purity by the confession and repentance of your sin sexually and claiming the forgiveness of Jesus Christ And determining by his grace in your life to live from this point on purely. The engagement ring, by the way, does not give license to sexual intimacy. Some couples assume that that is the case, but it is not so. And Joseph and Mary are good examples that prove that that is not so. For they were legally engaged... And yet had never come together until there was the public ceremony setting them apart as husband and wife. And that is God's plan. Sexual intimacy is to be reserved for marriage. Now, it is in that context of virginity that we come here to this second work of the Holy Spirit as we think about the meaning of Christmas to Him. His power is manifested in the virgin birth a miracle. The virgin birth was essential to Christ's coming as genuine man, but one who was free from imputed sin and a sinful nature. The virgin birth was essential. He had to be human in every respect that he might empathize, identify, and finally sacrifice himself for the human race, But he of necessity had to be born by a means other than the natural means involving a man and a woman. Because there is sin transmitted in that, in God's eyes. David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. Not that he was born sinfully, in a manner that involves some kind of sexual looseness. But he was simply indicating the fact that even in his mother's womb... He had inherited a sinful nature. Therefore, Jesus Christ had to be born uniquely to avoid that. Now, his name, Emmanuel, and by the way, that's not so much a name as we think of that term, but a description or a characterization of him, because the name means God with us. Emmanuel stresses the deity. Of this one who is involved in the birth. We ask the question how was the virgin birth accomplished? Well, we do not know how, and we cannot say how it was accomplished because God has not told us. Except that she was with child of the Holy Spirit. That is impossible apart from a miracle. Now it is true, in some lower forms of life, reproduction is possible without the participation of the male. But it is impossible in humans, whether naturally or artificially. Jesus Christ was supernaturally conceived within Mary's womb. Now there are some who say that God created the egg, the embryo, and supernaturally put it into Mary. I disagree with that because that again separates him from her humanity, which was very important. He had to be truly her child. And so he was conceived within her womb. But then there was another miracle that took place by the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit protected the humanity of the Lord Jesus from Mary's sin. So he was conceived without father, and then protected within his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit, so that that holy thing that would be born of her would be called the Son of God, as the angel told Mary and recorded in Luke chapter 2. So when the Holy Spirit thinks of Christmas, he thinks of his power being manifested. And it was. It was. But then the Holy Spirit, as he thinks of Christmas and its meaning to him, would surely realize this too. That in Christmas, we see his person hidden. The person of the Holy Spirit is hidden. Always, even in these Christmas texts that we're dealing with in this season, the central person is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit never seeks to promote himself, he only seeks to lift up Christ. The Holy Spirit is modest, he is unpretentious, he is unassuming, he keeps himself always in the background and puts Jesus in the foreground. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come after his ascension back to heaven. And would he speak of himself? No. Jesus said he will speak of me. He will continue to reveal me to you. You see, the Holy Spirit is always in the role of an implementer an executor, an equipper, an enabler. But he is never the headliner. He is never the principal. He is never the center of attention. He seeks to glorify Christ, but shuns attention to himself. And so as we look at the beautiful Christmas story, we observe... That while the Holy Spirit is quietly doing his miraculous work, he is nonetheless hiding himself in the narrative so that nothing will detract from the Son of God who came to save. As we think of the meaning of Christmas to the Holy Spirit, there are some wonderful observations we can make that apply to our lives. First observation is this, that our faith is rooted in the supernatural. Whether you are talking about the production of this book or you're talking about the virgin birth, our faith is rooted in the supernatural. If it is not, our faith is meaningless. We are not the followers of some legendary hero or a cunning myth or a superior ethic. But rather, we who claim the name of Jesus Christ are followers of of the one living God. Wilbur Smith, who went home to be with Christ a number of years ago now, said, the supernaturalism of Christianity rests distinctly and solidly upon the supernaturalism of its founder, Jesus Christ. Close quote. Our faith rests upon the supernatural. And so let us never hesitate to identify With a Savior such as Jesus. We do not need to apologize for Him. We do not need to be embarrassed about Him. Because He is the supernatural God come into time. Our faith is rooted in the supernatural. A second observation I make is this. That our power comes from a supernatural source. And that is... The Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who was active back then in the birth of Jesus is the Holy Spirit that is active in your life and mine today if we are Jesus Christ. As He worked in Mary, so He works in all of God's servants. With different actions, of course, but it's the same supernatural energy or force that is involved in us. And so we have to ask the question are you living? in the fullness of His power or in the futility of your own weakness. The servants of God throughout the generations have been men and women who have known the meaning of living life in the power of the supernatural. We can weakly make our way through the years of life and merely exist as Christians because we are living it in our own strength or we can learn what it means to appropriate the power of God and begin experiencing supernatural life abundant life here and now does he live through you my fellow Christian what proof is there in your life that the supernatural Christ lives in you? Can it be that there would be nothing about us that sets us apart from the unsaved person in the world who lives merely on a natural level because that's all he is? Is it possible that a person whose life source is rooted in the supernatural, can live merely on that plane? If we profess the name of Christ today, let us begin living in the power of His Spirit and allowing His life to flow through us unimpeded and freely. A third observation I make is that our witness... Our witness should imitate that of the Holy Spirit. Our business is to lift up Jesus Christ and not ourselves. My stepfather often prays at the table before a meal, using a little phrase that I remember from the time that he married my mother when I was 15. And he says, Hide us Behind the cross. Now, I'm not sure all that he means in that, but I like that phrase. We are so prone to want to be center stage. We want to promote ourselves, we want to enjoy the limelight. Our humanity wants to be noticed. We crave the applause and the approval of others. But beloved, let us be like the Holy Spirit as we think of Christmas this year. Let us be content. Yes, let us desire to live in the background and with meekness and humility to put Jesus forth. There's an old adage that says, He that tooteth not his own horn shall not have his horn tooted. Hey, Let's just blow one trumpet, and that's Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is unassuming, unpretentious, hides himself. Let's do the same and live seeking to exalt Jesus Christ and then others and then ourselves. And to those who may be here without Jesus Christ... May I reinforce in your mind this morning that the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in causing Christ's birth had but one purpose. And that is that he might, the Savior, Jesus Christ, might be qualified to die for your sins and thus glorify God. That's why he was active. That's why he was doing what he was doing. That's why he caused the conception within Mary that he might do his part in producing the Son of God who is Son of Man and able to die for you and your sins. I was listening to the radio earlier this morning and the announcer mentioned an evangelist who's been home with the Lord now a number of years, John R. Rice, who made this statement, you can never truly enjoy Christmas Until you look up in the Father's face and tell him you have received his Christmas gift. My friend, can you look up into the Father's face and say, I have received your gift? Or are you still putting off that decision? Will you make it today? Will you decide today to receive that gift? He's waiting. He's holding it out to you, offering it graciously, appealing to you to come to Him. Will you? Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, I pray that in the closing minutes of this service, you will accomplish your perfect will in the heart of every one of us. Amen.